fundamental problem with the immigration system in our country is that it serves the needs of wealthy donors, political activists, and powerful, powerful politicians. Let me tell you who it does not serve. It does not serve you, the American people. Doesn't serve you. Welcome to the August 30th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. That's probably a familiar sound to you, whether you like it or not. And that speech about immigration was from 2016, when then-candidate Donald Trump hadn't even entered the White House yet. It's been two years since he said those words, but the tone hasn't changed. That same year, though, there was another voice we heard. This one was much younger. I am one of the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the shadows of the United States. I decided to stand before you today and reveal these unexpected realities because this might be my only chance to convey the truth to all of you that undocumented immigrants are people too. I was... Larissa Martinez's valedictorian speech at a high school in North Texas helped many people understand the stakes involved around the debate about immigration. Fast forward two years, and you'll be happy to know, she just finished her sophomore year at Yale University, where she's studying history and political science. She's one of the lucky ones. As her college offers her access to a lawyer and even stipend for books, but even she faces obstacles. Since, as an undocumented student, she's ineligible to study abroad, work on campus, or even take part in a paid internship. There are 45 million residents of the United States who are foreign-born, including me, and less than a quarter of us are undocumented. Yet a poll that was published by the Pew Research Center in June revealed that a whopping 42% of Americans think most immigrants in this country are here illegally. What this tells me is there's a lot of disinformation about immigration. And that's also true in the arts community. But there's hope. The same month as that poll was released, 70 of New York's leading arts organizations sent a letter to the New York Department of Cultural Affairs and Mayor Bill de Blasio's Office of Immigrant Affairs to organize a summit for cultural institutions so they could be more effectively a support for the city's immigrant communities. Among the signatories were Abrams Art Center, National Black Theater, Recess, Smack Mellon, Visual Aids, Laundromat Project, and Wage. Sadly, no major museums in the city signed on to it, Well, not yet anyway. The letter they penned was pretty unequivocal, and it reads in part, the ruthless assault on immigrant communities and on migrants trying to seek asylum at the border has reached unprecedented levels. Then it adds, we are appalled by these actions happening in America now and believe this is a moment where we have to hold each other and our institutions accountable. The good thing is, The city is listening. And why wouldn't they? 
almost 40% of New York's population is foreign-born, which comes out to roughly 3.3 million people from over 150 countries. The city actually has the largest immigrant population of any city in the world. And in case if you were wondering, back in 1970, only 18% of the city was foreign-born. Quite a change. Now, on such a vast topic as immigration, where do we begin? How about here? I think one of the things I keep thinking about is, you know, how to be how, how to do the small daily work that's necessary and yet keep uh, and that's urgent. That is so overwhelming. It's overwhelming the amount of little daily work that needs to be done to protect ourselves. So keeping an eye on the larger vision while doing the small daily work. I think that's a really, really hard balance for everybody. That's Abu Farman. He's an artist and an anthropologist at New School. And I asked him to join us at Hyperallergic Studio to talk about the recent push to get arts organizations more involved with the needs of immigrant communities. He's joined by Raquel de Anda, Director of Public Engagement at No Longer Empty, a local arts organization. I asked them, why now? Why are arts organizations in the city eager to do something at this moment? Abu, you've been involved with this issue for quite a while. Why now? Why all of a sudden are cultural institutions and organizations finally interested? Because, you know, the writing's been on wall for a few years. There's been a lot of issues that different immigrants in our community have been facing. The writing has been on the wall for a long time. And, you know, people think it all started with the Trump administration, but it's been going on, as a lot of the organizations point out all the time, it's been going on through the Obama years and Obama was the deporter-in-chief. So it's been going on, and then when Trump got elected, there was, you know, the general sort of social panic and need to do something, and there was a moment there where immigration was one of the issues, and a number of us got together and started talking about this, but not much came out of it. And we were trying to see what the art institutions, what the city's Department of Cultural Affairs, the various organizations and community can do in order to address what was obviously going to come. It was right. about to hit. I mean, during his whole candidacy, Trump was saying this is exactly what he was going to do. It was very clear. And a lot of people at first didn't believe that he's actually going to carry <laughs> right. it out. But, you know, slowly he ramped it up, ramped it up until the border separations. And, you know, it, it should have happened earlier. But that was when people suddenly said, oh, wow, this is not just, you know, some minor policy issue or some immigration law matter. This is really, you know, something egregious. The audio you just heard reveals some of the most awful moments of the child separation policy currently at the U.S. and Mexico border a policy that has shocked people all around the world. Nearly 3,000 children were impacted, and hundreds are still not reunited with their families. Experts say some families may never be whole again. The depth of the racism, of the dehumanization that is already at the core of, of immigration policies and immigration action really surfaced there, and I think that obviously changed I'm not going to say it's too late, but that, that was what changed uh, people's 
sort of perspective on this on the larger and wider scale? I would just say that, you know, when we saw the first iteration of the travel ban drop, you know, seeing thousands of people head to the airport and really, you know, blockade that space and try and like get mm -hmm. people access and entry into the states. And, and then, you know, not just at the airports, but across the country in various sites. We are here to say we are here to say that we're not going to stand for the criminalization of immigrants in this country. That we are not going to stand for the criminalization of immigrants in this country. That the act of coming to this country to seek refuge is not a crime. That the act of coming to this country to seek refuge is not a crime. That was the sound of protest at one New York airport last year when the so-called Muslim ban was heralded by an executive order that was signed by Trump just seven days after he assumed office. It was heartwarming to see people running to the airports, holding signs of welcome as the executive branch tries to close the doors. But it was also a shocking time, since that ban was the first time that people with green cards were also impacted by U.S. bans. It was pretty clear that the current administration was escalating the issue. I asked Abu why he thought arts organizations aren't more involved in advocating for immigrants. You know, I think part of it has been a sort of a separation, institutional separation between the activist organizations and the art organization and the cultural organization. And so the question has always been, well, what can we do? What can we do? And of course, the answers are there, I think, in the activist organizations, in the immigrant right organizations, except, you know, that, that separation has meant that people haven't gotten involved as much. Now, of course, people have. There have been a number of artists and a number of art events and performative events along the way that have taken place. But in general, organizations and institutions as such have been a little bit shy, partly because of the threat of punishment that came very quickly from the Trump administration around these issues. You know, withholding money from, from states and from organizations and from universities, and those are all threats. Not much of it has really transpired, uh, but that threat got everybody very quickly insecure right. about the kinds of actions that can take place. And to some extent, I think that serves some of the bigger organizations and institutions, the bigger museums. I think they really didn't want to do anything that dramatic except mm -hmm. rearrange art on the wall. So as a result, they could hide behind it. And for some others, there were legitimate questions about their 501c3 status, about the limits of their action, about their funding. And so I think the level of risk that was required, people didn't stand up to that. I mean, I think the, the power of cultural organizations and institutions is having access to resources, right? We have access to some funding from the city, some funding from the state, whatever that might look like. We also have access to sites. We have access to organize people. We have access to create exhibitions, to lift up specific voices and specific narratives. And I think the work that Artspace Sanctuary has been doing, that Abu has been developing around with Artspace Sanctuary is really necessary because there's a whole educational element there where we are really trying to educate and inform cultural institutions as to how much space they really have to move, right? How much risk they can actually take without having their 501c3 be removed from them, right? And there's actually a lot that we can do. And, you know, 
time and time again, I think we know the power of art. We know the power of artists to really galvanize movements, to inspire the imagination, to create alternative narratives, all of these ideas. But it's cultural institutions, or I should say, and it's cultural institutions that can really provide venues, platforms for those ideas and narratives to really be pushed out into other spaces. One of the issues is that obviously the people who are being hit hardest uh, following the travel ban and, and the Muslim ban are people who don't have document precarity. They don't have status that is accepted by the state. And I think that division is really, really strong socially. People are invisibilized uh, who, don't, who are undocumented. And I think that's part of part of the reason why it doesn't feel or seem as urgent to a lot of art organizations. Now, you know, in terms of the cultural cultural spectrum, I have to say, you know, the libraries have been, I think, the most interesting because, you know, although they may not have been doing, you know, on the street hardcore activism, they've really been a source of support, right. structural support for immigrant and undocumented communities in all sorts of ways, access to information, having space. They are full. Libraries are full. They're doing their job. They are doing an amazing job. And yeah. they have, I think Tom Finkelpearl was mentioning, I don't know the exact data, but the libraries get as many visitors as all the art institutions in the city, including private ones, MoMA and so on, put together. And so Tom Finkelpearl, of course, is the commissioner of culture here right. in New York. And I would, I would also just push back and say that cultural organizations are actually doing a lot. I think No Longer Empty uh, last year hosted an exhibition at the Nathan Cummings Foundation called Hold These Truths, which was really questioning a lot of the falsehoods that are being put forward by the U.S. government, right? And we had about 15 different artists who, in a variety of different forms, were developing this, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, that's just No Longer Empty. I, I would say that there are there's a multitude of organizations that are really trying to lift up the work of, again, artists who are challenging these narratives and who are immigrants themselves. Now, I think there's a spectrum of how involved you are, right? Are you going to create an exhibition? Are you going to fund an application that allows people to know when their neighbors are being targeted by ICE so that you can, so people can then get galvanized and show up at the front door and prevent ICE from coming in? Mm -hmm. Are you going to actually provide sanctuary as a library? What does that even mean? Yeah. Right? So there's a whole spectrum of engagement. And I think that's something that I know we've been talking a lot about and that we're hoping actually that this this gathering that is going to be developed in the fall and that's part of a larger series will begin to do, right? Really right. show models of what's been developed in the past and get people to think about how much more they can push themselves, right? Because what we've seen since 45 came through is people want to get involved. They just don't necessarily know how, right? Right. So I'm not surprised libraries have been at the forefront where during the Patriot Act, weren't they also the ones who were like, we'll just delete users' data, you know, so right. that we don't, you know, <laughs> so they were finding creative ways to ensure the security of their patrons. You know, one of the purposes of these series of events Raquel mentioned is precisely to also provide some of the legal answers and some of the policy answers, both from the side of the city and, and uh, as well as from other lawyers about, you know, what the limits are of participation, of protection, of action, and so on, because I think a lot of organizations keep asking these questions. Well, you know, can we really be a sanctuary? Can we do this without jeopardizing our 501c3 status? Can, you know, what are the answers to those questions? Right. And I think to have, you know, a large convening co-sponsored by the city, by the city's Department of Cultural Affairs, to address these issues 
as as a large collective, I think is really important instead of each organization inventing their own response. So this is a good segue. So why don't you explain what this event is? Sure. So Artspace Sanctuary has been involved in a call to the city for over a year now, for about a year now, uh, which No Longer Empty became engaged in in February, asking the city to really take a leadership role in this moment, right? We know that cities are the first the first line of defense against what we currently have, which is an extremely toxic and hostile government against immigrants. And what we were really wanting to do is call on the city to host a summit for cultural organizations and for the larger cultural community really to come together, to become more connected, to become more educated around what and how they can legally act within the parameters that they have set before them by their 501c3 status, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a series of events that will be unfolding starting this week, starting this Thursday, which is um, led begun by Office Hours with the Commissioner, with Tom Finkelpearl, who's the Commissioner of DCLA and Moya, the Mayor's Office of Which is the Department of Cultural Affairs. Affairs. Thank you. So um, the... Moya is the mayor's office of immigrant affairs and the commissioner Bita Mustofia will also be present Mm -hmm. and it'll basically be a space for answering questions for asking questions of the commissioner for cultural organizations for artists to come and to become more informed and for Abu and I to also learn about what's really up for people right what are Mm -hmm. people really questioning sitting on thinking about so that we can then take those questions and incorporate them into a larger summit at the end of October for the cultural community to come and participate in, which will include workshops, panel discussions, trainings. It'll be a much more in-depth, hands-on, experiential process for people to learn how they can become engaged. And then hopefully in the spring, we'll be developing a larger exhibition series of interventions. Like what, why don't you like outline it? Like in a perfect world, what would that look like? What would art spaces do? So, you know, this the work that I've been trying to develop with in sort of what we might call art spaces of art institutions is related to the work I've been doing with the New Sanctuary Coalition, which has been which has been doing amazing work and has changed a lot of the way I've been thinking about, you know, organizing and about immigration and documentation and so on. And one of the things that that we worked towards at the beginning was to develop the notion of sanctuary out from its uh, 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 its core in the in the church in mm-hmm. the sanctuary of the church, out into uh, the wider social sphere into neighborhoods. So we had a, a, a sanctuary hood idea where what would happen if the entire block knew how to protect each other, right? Right? What would happen if a whole block was a sanctuary and knew what the rights were if ICE was to knock on the door or even appear on the street? What are the strategies they could have, they could put into place where citizens could protect non-citizens from the kind of attacks, from the hunting that ICE engages in? So that idea then, you know, so as part of that, I was thinking, well, you know, art institutions have spaces and large spaces. All All these different kinds of spaces ought to be engaged in this kind of work, even if it means, you know, so that's the ideal, obviously, of of having, you know, the whole place sanctuary. And in a way, the idea of sanctuary is to say, you know, that law that you have is a horrible law and it's not my law. That's sort of the essence of it. And so we're going to protect each other based on that very strong uh, line that we draw moral line, political lines. So Abu, you're an artist as well and creative person. 
if you were to advise other people to say, what are three things they can do to get involved and be informed and all these types of things, what would you say? I think a lot of activists, immigrant rights organizations are doing really, really good work. The end goal may be some comprehensive immigration reform and so on, and that may seem at this point a long shot, but you know, I don't think it really is in the ground shift. So I think looking into those groups, and they can be you know, any number of them. Do you want to name a couple? New Sanctuary Coalition, that I've been mostly involved with, has been doing amazing work, including work that has involved artists, that has involved performative situations and so on. So there's room, obviously, for artists to get involved. Other other ones, you know, Make the Road, Baji, Black Alliance for Just Immigration, you know, there's a number of these organizations that have been very active, both on sort of the policy, the protest, as well as the creative side of things. And I think that would be uh, the most important. Of course, the danger always, and we've always talked about this, you know, for people with goodwill to show up and say, I want to do something, and then they end up sort of being in the way. And so people have to get involved in a very conscious way, right, uh, without throwing their own status and privilege status around and also not getting in the way. But there are things, you know, all of these, uh, especially New Sanctuary Coalition has some very good training programs, for the legal clinic, they have an accompaniment program, uh, again, accompanying people who have to interface with state institutions from, from ICE check-ins to courts to hospitals and so on. And going alone is not only daunting, but can have bad results. Whereas if you're accompanied by a team of citizens, it, the results are dramatically different. And that's, so one, that's, that's one a way form of participating, of mo- right? That's one form of mobile sanctuary. And New Sanctuary has trainings on that. So I would look that up. I think that, for me, that's been one of the great effective ways. And, and like Raquel was saying, these movements have grown in size because people have realized the, the importance and the urgency. And, and there's been a growing understanding that this isn't just about a small group somewhere in a small little discrete box called immigration, but that these issues are intimately interrelated. And just to add to that, um, <clears throat> you know, activist organizations learning how to connect with creative visionaries to really take their ideas into the public realm, into other spaces. But then also arts organizations. We have the Laundromat Project, whose mm-hmm. fellowship mm-hmm. is specifically focused on sanctuary and really um, inviting emerging artists to consider what sanctuary means and all of its different definitions and connecting them to groups like Make the Road, like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, like Asian American Writers Workshop, right, so that they can become better informed and equipped to produce Mm -hmm. meaningful and useful work. Dance NYC has hosted convenings around um, immigration. Culture Strike, which is a national organization, has been leading trips to the border with artists so that they can visit detention centers, visit the border itself, and use that as fodder for future work itself. Mm -hmm. Um, They've also, you know, received funding from a variety of institutions to produce work at the border. So there is a lot of work that's being developed. And I would say that all of that is a beacon of light for really sparking new, yeah. a new vision for a future that we all deserve to live in. Right. That was Abu Farman and Raquel de Anda. And now some headlines. A visitor to the Seralvis Museum in Portugal really fell for a Nish Kapoor installation. Well, he actually fell into it, if we're going to be more exact. An Italian man fell into the gaping 2.5-meter hole, roughly 8 feet, which can appear as an optical illusion or a painted black circle on the ground. When asked about the incident, Anish Kapoor replied, 
What can I say? It is a shame. Thankfully, the man wasn't harmed. But what was the name of the Kapoor piece, you ask? Descent into Limbo. A group of trans-exclusionary radical feminists known as TERFs have plastered stickers reading women don't have penises around Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Among their targets were a series of Anthony Gormley statues on a local beach. The stickers opposed proposed legislation to lessen restrictions on changing one's gender ID on legal documents. The city's mayor condemned the hate speech on social media and promised the city will remove the stickers and that police will investigate the matter. No arrests have been made. Some astronomers are peeved with Trevor Paglin's latest plans for outer space. The artist crowdfunded for a project to launch an extremely reflective sculpture into the stratosphere. Titled Orbiter Reflector, the 100-foot-long diamond-shaped balloon coated with titanium dioxide is so shiny that it looks like mylar. The piece would remain in the sky for approximately two months after its scheduled launch aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, leaving the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California in mid-November. Jonathan McDowell, an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, is one of those who is not pleased. He told Gizmodo, it's the space equivalent of someone putting a neon advertising billboard right outside your bedroom window. Paglin told Hyperallergic that complaints in the media are largely overplayed. And I quote, I definitely understand how some people might feel vaguely morally offended by the project, but I'd like to drill down on what legitimate concerns astronomers might have. The Italian government has revoked the export license it granted on a 19th century painting by Francois Girard, which was purchased by the Frick Collection in late 2017. A seven-foot-tall portrait of Prince Camillo Borghese was announced last December by the Frick as one of its most significant painting acquisitions in 30 years. But the government says not so fast as the export license application didn't really state who the portrait was of, and now the government is claiming the painting is considered integral to Italy's cultural heritage. Now joining me in the studio is hyperallergic staff writer Zachary Small. He spent the last few weeks investigating new allegations in the Me Too movement. That's right. Hi, Zachary. Recently, you penned an article for the site on Avital Ronell. In that case is concerning NYU, which the renowned feminist professor of comparative literature and Germanic languages was found responsible of sexually harassing a male graduate student by a Title IX investigation. In her summary for the case for The Nation, Katha Pollitt, which I think, you know, echoes a lot of what you said in your article, but I just think it's so well put here. She writes, how odd then that these professors could see domination operating everywhere except the one place they could actually do something about it, in their own relations with students. Exactly. I think that Pollitt really puts it right here. In looking at the hypocrisy that's surrounding academia and the Ronell case, 
What I wish more people really looked into with this case and why even I in my own article probably could have touched on more is the relationship between queer bodies and trauma. Both Rennell and her accuser identify as queer. Mm -hmm. And one of the principal parts of Rennell's defense in the case was saying that as a queer woman, it wouldn't make sense to violate a queer man. Well, under scrutiny, that doesn't actually hold much water. Anyone is capable of attacking anyone else. That's the harsh truth of it. Right. And I mean, it just I think the logic of it is also feels very tortured because that would also suggest that somehow a woman could never, you know, harass a man or rape a man. I mean, there are a lot of like implications for a suggestion like that. So I'm glad that, you know, people are taking it critically. Exactly. And that's one of the things that people are coming at the Me Too movement with asking if when the positions are flipped, as the New York Times stated, what happens to the Me Too movement? So thinking about this, thinking about the Me Too movement, started getting me to think about who really ignited this current conversation about sexual assault and harassment. And that got me thinking about Emma Solkowitz and their 2014 mattress performance. Right. Back in 2014, Columbia faced that massive student protest against its lax Title IX policies. I mean, because often they weren't holding students accused of sexual harassment and assault accountable, right? Exactly. Emma was the person who sparked many of those protests with their performance art, which involved carrying a 50-pound mattress across campus for the entire year. And in international media, Emma soon became known as Mattress Girl. Yeah, I'm sure most people know Emma by that name. But what's something they don't know? I don't think people actually realize that Emma is a gender nonconforming person and uses the pronouns they, them. Despite reports that used she and her, Emma is genderqueer. What this means to me is that the Me Too movement really became ignited in the iteration we see today with a queer person. And in the case of Avital Ronell, the relationship between queer bodies and violence needs to be discussed. In order to do that, I sat down with Emma Solkowitz in the studio. You know, even in your own story, how the New York Times reports thing, New York Magazine, they leave out your pronouns. Yeah. Right? And that changes the story, and it changes the, if you will, dialectic of the story between male and female, when it's, it's so much more than that. And there's so many issues, of course, of violence against queer people, or, you know, how queer people find their identity through trauma, because they're so often targeted, you yeah. know, so unconsciously or not, it's a huge issue. Would yeah, you agree? Totally. And I mean, this is something that we talked about recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that being the victim of assault helped me realize that I was gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. People are so much more ready to accept narratives that are constructed with binary genders so man attacks woman right even like man attacks man like in terms of sexual violence in terms of transgender Mm -hmm. identities people are much more willing to understand oh uh she was a man trapped in a woman's body or whatever like Mm -hmm. man trapped in a woman's body woman trapped in a man's body those are the predominant transgender narratives that we hear about 
So for Emma, queer identity is about asserting one's ability to define oneself and defy easy categorization. Yeah, and I think that's true. It's important to remember that queerness is such a broad concept and can take on a range of permutations. Everyone has their own definition, and that's kind of what queerness is supposed to be. But often, when people do talk about queerness, they talk about it within a larger sense of power politics. And again, that relates to what's going on at NYU with the Avital Ronell incident and the fact that she identifies as a queer feminist, but she's accused of sexually harassing her queer male graduate student, Nibrod Reitman. Right. And it's important to note that Ronell was found responsible in a Title IX investigation that ended with an 11-month suspension for her from the university. Yet Ronell, as I've reported in my essay for Hyperallergic, still has a long list of famous supporters defending her. In a drafted letter made public in June, signatories in her defense included Judith Butler, Slavoj Žižek, and Chris Krauss, famous philosophers, theorists, and writers whose entire life's work is supposed to deconstruct those malevolent mechanisms of society, which here it appears like they're supporting. Right. And that's why it's so disturbing to like read you know, a lot of the stuff around the Renal case. I actually spoke to Emma and got their opinion on the case. And we talked for a while about this generational divide between our generation and the one Renal belongs to, which often reiterates the bad habits and hostile learning environments of their own teachers. I think there are two huge hurdles that our society has in mm -hmm. terms of like understanding queerness and victimhood. One, society has a lot of difficulty believing that queer people can be victims. The other difficulty is that people cannot believe that assailants can be queer, right? right? And this is something that is so personal to me because if it's true that I'm a queer person, it's impossible that I can be a victim, right? right. And quote unquote. And like, and like re remembering back to my attacker's hearing at Columbia, mm -hmm. how his main defense was like, I, I could never have attacked a genderqueer person because I'm not gay, right? Like, right. whatever the fuck that means. So there's this resistance to believing that the two can happen simultaneously. Right. People have trouble believing that two <laughs> things can be true at once. <laughs> it's a similar way that a lot of uh, Ronell supporters have also said, or have questioned in a very, again, academic way, you know, can a woman be an assailant? I think the short answer is yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, any <laughs> anyone can. This is something not unique. You know, unfortunately, violence is not unique. And I think what this story really shows is how it's perpetuated in postmodernism as well, in this academic thought that most artists working today are using in their work. I'm familiar with people using, and right. I was like so upset to hear that people who could call themselves feminists would use the most... Like, come up with at least a new defense, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, it said the Title IX report concluded that there was not enough evidence to find Professor Rennell responsible for sexual assault, mm -hmm. partly because no one else observed the interactions in his apartment or her room in Paris. And it's like, well, if we're going to say that sexual assault can't be true if there isn't, like, a rando third-person bystander to, like, watch it and take notes... Right. then that means that pretty much no sexual assault on earth has ever happened. Right. I think what's, <laughs> what's unfortunately not discussed in the New York Times article, uh, and that people probably, frankly, don't know about Title IX investigations, is that because it's kind of a pseudo-legal investigation, the burden of proof 
is actually on the victim, whereas in most legal cases, burden of proof is put on the accused. That's a huge discrepancy, and it's something that means that for cases of sexual assault or harassment, it's stacked against the victim already, even in a Title IX investigation, even though these academics are saying that Avital Ronell is the victim of a witch hunt. You know, it's actually largely stacked in her favor or in the favor of other accused assailants. Yeah, like by this logic, we should always have some person watching us have sex because then if it goes badly, we can be like, oh, well, at least there was this judge in the room like wearing a referee shirt. Like, what the fuck? Right, (laughs) and it kind of leads me back to Cross's statement of like, you know, the Me Too movement will only make the most technocratic pedagogies. Actually, if you look at the legal structure and do some investigating into this, what's technocratic is the thing that is we're... actually the, the legal framework as it is. You know, if we're supposed to sign consent forms every time we have sex or we're supposed to record these things, it's not because we want to or feel like we have to. It's because the framework does not support us if something goes wrong in yeah. that interaction. And that's probably not how it should be. Yeah, I so agree with you. I think the the other, like main it's when people say like the me too movement has gone too far Mm -hmm. it's like i think that the like movements social movements Mm -hmm. are kind of organic weird things with a bunch of people laying claim to it Mm -hmm. there are within the me too movement people that i think are doing the me too movement the way i would do it there are also people in the me too movement who are making a huge mess and i would say you know like are laying claim to a movement that they're not actually truly like doing Mm -hmm. a great job in (laughs) of participating in Diane Davis, chair of the Department of Rhetoric at the University of Texas, Austin, who also signed the letter to the university supporting Professor Rennell, said that she and her colleagues were particularly disturbed that, as they saw it, Mr. Reitman was using, a title, was using Title IX, a feminist tool, to take down a feminist. So this is a quote from this the, is a quote the from... New York Times article, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I just read a paragraph from the New York Times article, and it's like, this, if um, Professor Rennell is laying claim to this position of feminism, that I don't think she's performing very well, right? Like, right. and um, yeah. <laughs> it's Sorry, time. I'm just very it's angry. <laughs> it's an exhausting conversation. Um, yeah, it's it's like feminism. Oh, okay, yeah. There are a lot of feminists and then there are a lot of people who are claiming to be feminists, Mm -hmm. but they're not like by, by sexually assaulting a student, you are no longer being a very good feminist, even if you call yourself a feminist. Right. But (laughs) of course, to Rennell, it probably isn't cast as sexual assault or harassment. And I imagine that unfortunately, again, I come back to the generational issue. I think our generation, or at least us two speaking on this podcast. Think of an intersectional approach. Yeah. That you can't have feminism without acknowledging intersectionalism, issues of race, economics, class, you know, that go into these uh, social factors. 
right? So for Ronell to say that this wasn't an issue for a lot of the other academics to ignore the power politics at play and also the body politics between an advisor and advisee really speaks to this difference in how we are seeing the world. Yeah. Right? And how we see our interactions. Yeah, that's so true. I think that like you and I are so lucky to be born into the generation of intersectional feminism Mm -hmm. where where race, um, power dynamics, you know, ability, ability, sexuality, and all of those things are essential to our understanding of, like, true feminism, right? Right. Like, we see feminism as something that cannot be separated from any of the other social movements because we have a more holistic view. (laughs) Right, and I think as queer people, too, we understand that our bodies in this kind of discourse as it is, are up for play. Yeah. That there's much more at stake in supporting issues of feminism, of social justice for people of color as well, because our bodies are at stake in that conversation. And they always have been. And it, it leads back to the Ronella case. It leads to your case as well. And I, I'm interested, I guess, coming back to your own practice, you know, what does that mean for your practice today to be thinking about these issues? Like, is there really anything more feminist than showing how much you've gone through and what a, a frankly a beating your body has taken and been able to show that to the public and still claim your power is there anything more feminist than that <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> wait can I say one more thing yeah, I course. think that also um one thing that's really changed for our generation and like I think this is one of the reasons that like Zach you and I personally like really see eye to eye on so many things and like understand each Mm -hmm. other is that like we language has developed to a point where we're able to understand when we've experienced violence like I think you know one thing that's been incredibly fascinating for me now that the Me Too movement is so widespread. And, but this is also something that happened when I made Mattress Performance and many women from the past generations reached out to me over like Facebook DM mm. or like my school email and were like, wow, your work helped me realize that what I experienced 20 years ago was rape. Right. And I think that now we live in a day and age where literally words have changed like we now have this term called a Harvey Weinstein, right? Like we have new words to describe sexual assault. Um, and the, the dangers and the experiences of violence are so much more, um, felt because we can articulate them. So I think that like being able to make work that is personal has become more urgent and more political and, um, more more net like more natural even to our generation right. in a way that artists in the past haven't really felt it right yeah so let's keep building up that vocabulary <laughs> yes <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me again this is hyperallergic staff critic zachary small and i have been joined in the studio today with emma sokowitz thank you thank you for having me zach I think it's important that we continue learning from cases like Avital Ronell's, cases like Emma's, and really continue building a new vocabulary to discuss sexual misconduct and assault. 
That's a great point. Thanks so much, Zachary. And thank you for having uh, your finger on this issue because uh, you've been doing a lot of interesting reporting around the Me Too movement and how it interfaces with the cultural communities. Thank you. I hope to continue it. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Newborn Huskies for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.